Chapter 8, Section 1 of The Promise of American Life by Herbert Crowley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by The Progressing America Project. Chapter 8, Section 1 Nationality and Democracy, National Origins. Whatever the contemporary or the logical relation, between nationality and democracy as ideas and as political forces, they were in their origin wholly independent of one another. The Greek city-states supplied the first examples of democracy, but their democracy brought with it no specifically national characteristics. In fact, the political condition and ideal implied by the word nation did not exist in the ancient world. The actual historical process, which culminated in the formation of the modern national state, began some time in the Middle Ages, a period in which democracy was almost an incredible form of political association. Some of the medieval communes were not without traces of democracy, but modern nations do not derive from these turbulent little states. They derive from the larger political divisions into which Europe drifted during the Dark Ages, and they have grown with the gradually prospering attempt to bestow on the government of these European countries the qualities of efficiency and responsibility. A complete justification of the foregoing statements would require a critical account of the political development of Western Europe since 400 B.C., but within the necessary limits of the present discussion, we shall have to be satisfied with the barest summary of the way in which the modern national states originated, and of the relation to democracy, which has gradually resulted from their own proper development. A great deal of misunderstanding exists as to the fundamental nature of a national, as opposed to a city or an imperial state because the meaning of the national idea has been obscured by the controversies which its militant assertion has involved. It has been identified both with a revolutionary and a racial political principle, whereas its revolutionary or racial associations are essentially occasional and accidental. The modern national state is at bottom the most intelligent and successful attempt, which has yet been made to create a comparatively stable, efficient, and responsible type of political association. The primary objects sought in political association are internal order, security from foreign attack, the authoritative and just adjustment of domestic differences and grievances, and a certain opportunity for individual development. And these several objects are really reducible to two, because internal order cannot be preserved among a vigorous people, in case no sufficient opportunity is provided for individual development, or for the adjustment of differences and grievances. In order that a state may be relatively secure from foreign attack, it must possess a certain considerable area, population, and military efficiency. The fundamental weakness of the commune or city-state has always been its inability to protect itself from the aggressions of larger or more warlike neighbors, and its correlative inability to settle its own domestic differences without foreign interference. On the other hand, when a state became sufficiently large and well organized to feel safe against alien aggression, it inevitably became the aggressor itself, and it inevitably carried the conquest of its neighbors, and it inevitably carried the conquest of its neighbors just as far as it was able. But domestic security, which is reached by constant foreign aggression, results inevitably in a huge unwieldy form of imperial political organization, which is obliged by the logic of its situation to seek universal dominion. The Romans made the great attempt to establish a dominion of this kind, and while their empire could not endure, because their military organization destroyed in the end the very foundation of internal order, 
they bequeathed to civilization a political ideal and a legal code of inestimable subsequent value. As long as men were obliged to choose between a communal or an imperial type of political organization, which was equivalent merely to a choice between anarchy and despotism, the problem of combining internal order with external security seemed insoluble. They needed a form of association strong enough to defend their frontiers, but not sufficiently strong to attack their neighbors with any chance of continued success. To defend their frontiers, but not sufficiently strong to attack their neighbors with any chance of continued success, and such a state could not exist unless its unity and integrity had some moral basis, and unless the aggressions of exceptionally efficient states were checked by some effective interstate organization. The coexistence of such states demanded in its turn the general acceptance of certain common moral ties and standards among a group of neighboring peoples, and such a tie was furnished by the religious bond by which Catholic Christianity united the peoples of Western Europe, a bond whereby the disorder and anarchy of the early Middle Ages was converted into a vehicle of political and social education. The members of the Christian body had much to fear from their fellow Christians, but they also had much to gain. They shared many interesting and vital subjects of consultation, and even when they fought, as they usually did, they were likely to fight to some purpose. But beyond their quarrels, Catholic Christians comprised one universe of discourse. They were somehow responsible one to another, and their mutual ties and responsibilities were most clearly demonstrated whenever a peculiarly unscrupulous and insistent attempt was made to violate them. As new and comparatively strong states began to emerge from the confusion of the early Middle Ages, it was soon found that under the new conditions, states which were vigorous enough to establish internal peace and to protect their frontiers were not vigorous enough to conquer their neighbors. Political efficiency was brought to a much better realization of its necessary limits and responsibilities because of the moral and intellectual education which the adoption of Christianity had imposed upon the Western peoples. One of the earliest examples of political efficiency in medieval Europe was the England of Edward I, which had begun to exhibit certain characteristics of a national state. Order was more than usually well preserved. It was sheltered by the channel from foreign attack. The interest both of the nobles and of the people had been considered in its political organization. A fair balance was maintained among the leading members of the political body, so that the English kings could invade France with the united national armies, which easily defeated the incoherent rabble of knights and serfs whereby they were opposed. Nevertheless, when the English, after the manner of other efficient states, tried to conquer France, they were wholly unable to extinguish French resistance, as the similar resistance of conquered peoples had so frequently been extinguished in classic times. The French people rallied to a king who united them in their resistance to foreign domination, and the ultimate effect of the prolonged English aggression was merely the increasing national efficiency and the improving political organization of the French people. The English could not extinguish the resistance of the French people, because their aggression aroused in Frenchmen latent power of effective association. Notwithstanding the prevalence of a factious minority, and the lack of any habit or tradition of national association, the power of united action for a common purpose was stimulated by the threat of alien domination, and this latent power was unquestionably the result, in some measure, of the discipline of Christian ideas to which the French, in common with the other European peoples, had been subjected. That discipline had, as has already been observed, increased men's capacity for fruitful association one with another. 
it had stimulated a social relationship much superior to the prevailing political relationship. It had enabled them to believe in an idea and to fight devotedly on its behalf. It is no accident, consequently, that the national resistance took on a religious character, and in Jean d'Arc gave birth to one of the most fragrant figures in human history. Thus the French national resistance, and the national bond thereby created, was one political expression of the power of cooperation developed in the people of Europe by the acceptance of a common religious bond. On the other hand, the use which the English had made of their precocious national organization weakened its foundations. The aggressive exercise of military force abroad for an object which it was incompetent to achieve disturbed the domestic balance of power on which the national organization of the English people rested. English political efficiency was dependent partly upon its responsible exercise, and it could not survive the disregard of domestic responsibilities, entailed by the expense in men and money of feudal external aggression. The history of Europe as it emerged from the Middle Ages affords a continuous illustration of the truth that the increasing political efficiency of the several states was proportioned to the exercise of their powers in a responsible manner. The national development of the several states was complicated in the beginning by the religious wars, but those peoples suffered least from the wars of religion, who did not in the end allow them to interfere with their primary political responsibilities. Spain, for instance, whose centuries of fighting with the Moors had enormously developed her military efficiency, used this military power solely for the purpose of pursuing political and religious objects, antagonistic or irrelevant to the responsibilities of the Spanish kings towards their own subjects. The Spanish monarchy proclaimed as its dominant political object the maintenance, by force, of the Catholic faith throughout Europe, and for three generations it wasted the superb military strength and the economic resources of the Spanish people, in an attempt to crush out Protestantism in Holland and England, and to reinforce militant Catholicism in France. Upon Germany, divided into a number of petty states, partly Protestant and partly Catholic, but with the imperial power exerted on behalf of a Catholic and anti-national interest, the religious wars laid a heavy hand. Her lack of political cohesion made her the prey of neighboring countries, whose population was numerically smaller, but which were better organized and the end of the Thirty Years' War left her both despoiled and exhausted, because her political organization was wholly incapable of realizing a national policy, or of meeting the national needs. Great Britain during all this period was occupied with her domestic problems, and interfered comparatively little in continental affairs, and the result of this discreet and sensible effort, to adapt her national organization to her peculiar domestic needs, was, in the eighteenth century, an extraordinary increase of national efficiency. France also emerged from the religious wars headed by a dynasty which really represented national aspirations, and which was alive in some respects to its responsibilities towards the French people. The Bourbon monarchy consolidated the French national organization, encouraged French intellectual and religious life, and at times sought in an intelligent manner to improve the economic conditions of the country. For the first time in the history of continental Europe, something resembling a genuinely national state was developed. Differences of religious opinion had been subordinated to the political and social interests of the French people. The crown, with the aid of a succession of able ministers, suppressed a factious nobility at home, and gradually made France the dominant European power. A condition of the attainment of both of these objects was the loyal support of the French people, and the alliance with the monarchy, 
as the embodiment of French national life, of Frenchmen of ability and purpose. The French monarchy, however, after it had become the dominant power in Europe, followed the bad example of previous states, and aroused the fear of its neighbors by a policy of excessive aggression. In this instance, French domineering did not stimulate the national development of any one neighbor, because it was not concentrated upon any one or two peoples. But it did threaten the common interests of a number of European states, and it awakened an unprecedented faculty of interstate association for the protection of these interests. The doctrine of the balance of power waxed, as the result of this experience, into a living principle in European politics, and it imposed an effective check upon the aggression of any single state. France was unable to retain the preponderant position which she had earned during the early years of the reign of Louis XIV, and this mistake of the Bourbon monarchy was the cause of its eventual downfall. The finances of the country were wrecked by its military efforts and failures, the industrial development of the people checked, and their loyalty to the Bourbons undermined. A gulf was gradually created between the French nation and its official organization and policy. England, on the other hand, was successfully pursuing the opposite work of national improvement and consolidation. She was developing a system of government which, while preserving the crown as the symbol of social order, combined aristocratic leadership with some measure of national representation. For the first time in centuries, the different members of her political body again began to function harmoniously, and she used the increasing power of aggression thereby secured, with unprecedented discretion and good sense. She had learned that her military power could not be used with any effect across the channel, and that under existing conditions, her national interests in relation to the other European powers were more negative than positive. Her expansive energy was concentrated on the task of building up a colonial empire in Asia and America, and in this task, her comparative freedom from continental entanglements enabled her completely to vanquish France. Her success in creating a colonial empire anticipated with extraordinary precision the course during the 19th century of European national development. In contemplating the political situation of Europe towards the end of the 18th century, the student of the origin of the power and principle of nationality will be impressed by its two divergent aspects. The governments of the several European states had become tolerably efficient for those purposes in relation to which, during the 16th century and before, efficiency had been most necessary. They could keep order. Their citizens were protected to some extent in the enjoyment of their legal rights. The several governments were closely associated, chiefly for the purpose of preventing excessive aggression on the part of any one state, and of preserving the balance of power. Unfortunately, however, these governments had acquired during the turbulent era an unlimited authority which was indispensable to the fundamental task of maintaining order, but which, after order had been secured, was sufficient to encourage abuse. Their power was, in theory, absolute. It was an imitation of Roman imperialism, and made no allowance for those limitations, both in its domestic and foreign expressions, which existed as a consequence of national growth and the international system. Their authority at all times was keyed up to the pitch of a great emergency. It was supposed to be the immediate expression of the commonweal. The commonweal was identified with the security of society and the state. The security of the state dictated the supreme law. The very authority, consequently, which was created to preserve order and the balance of power, 
gradually became an effective cause of internal and external disorder. It became a source not of security, but of individual and social insecurity, because a properly organized machinery for exercising such a power and redeeming such a vast responsibility had not yet been wrought. The rulers of the continental states in the eighteenth century explained and excused every important action they took, by what was called la raison d'état, that is, by reasons connected with the public safety, which justified absolute authority and extreme measures. But as a matter of fact, this absolute authority, instead of being confined in its exercise to matters in which the public safety was really concerned, was wasted and compromised chiefly for the benefit of a trivial domestic policy, and a merely dynastic foreign policy. At home the exercise of absolute authority was not limited to matters and occasions which really raised questions of public safety. In their foreign policies, the majority of the states had little idea of the necessary and desirable limits of their own aggressive power. Those limits were imposed from without, and when several states could combine in support of an act of international piracy, as in the case of the partition of Poland, Europe could not be said to have any effective system of public law. The partition of Poland, which France could and should have prevented, was at once a convincing exposure of the miserable international position to which France had been reduced by the Bourbons, and the best possible testimony to the final moral bankruptcy of the political system of the 18th century. End of chapter 8, section 1